Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Christianity. And I know that that's kind of a jarring set of words to put together, toxic Christianity. And we will certainly explain that. Our theme for today is hypocrisy. And unfortunately, I believe just about everybody who has been in the church for any amount of time has had one of those experiences where either you've had a bad experience in a church or maybe with a group of people who proclaim themselves to be a Christian or even just another Christian and you had an experience where something was said or done or you were made to feel rejected and hurt. And when those things happen, we have to decide how we are going to respond. What do I do with that? When you encounter something like that that is toxic, it's doing you harm, what do we do? Now, I don't believe that there is any church or any group of Christians or any Christian that wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what? I aspire to be toxic with my face today. I don't think that happens. I don't think we get up and they're like, you know, I really hope that people are offended that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ today. And I make them wonder if they too should be a disciple. Instead, I think what happens is what we're seeing in the scriptures is that sometimes we become a people who exist long enough in these forms, whether it's as a church or as a church group or even as an individual Christian, and we develop patterns of behavior, we develop things that we say, sometimes those are traditions, sometimes those are more regional or colloquial, and what we end up doing is developing a second standard of things that we hold dear to us. And what ends up happening there is that if somebody comes in and doesn't conform to those standards, or they seem not to fit with our expectations, then we have a reaction to that. And that is not what Jesus was asking us to do. And instead, what we have to do is constantly look at what we say and do as individuals and collectively as a body of Christ. What are we doing that might now be undermining, subverting the gospel? Because the gospel is for all people. God so loved the world, as is proclaimed in the gospel account of John, that God sent God's only son so that everyone might find new life. So if that is the standard, then everything else that we do as Christians and as churches should support that being realized, that everybody in the world would come to know that they are loved, that they are valued, that they are of sacred worth. But sometimes, as we are in relationship with one another, that doesn't happen. And when someone is hurt by the body of Christ or by a Christian, what we end up finding is that that's not just an emotional or mental pain. It's a spiritual pain. And so Jesus is asking us to look very closely at what we do. So today's scripture, he uses a word that we're going to talk about, and that word is hypocrites, as in Someone who is practicing hypocrisy. And you might have heard that word. In fact, there's a lot of pairing Christianity and hypocrisy together in the world, right? Christians are hypocrites too. And so that comes from a more pejorative definition that you'll find. It says this, that hypocrisy is the pretense of possessing a virtuous character 
moral, ethical, or religious beliefs and principles that one does not really possess. It's to claim something that you do not have. So that, of course, doesn't read very well, right? That doesn't, it sounds like you're actually trying to put forth a false front. You're trying to portray yourself as something that you are not. It's almost as if you were actually lying about who you are. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I actually found a more helpful definition from moral psychology that says that hypocrisy is to fail to follow one's expressed morality. It is a failure to do what you want to do, what you are trying to do, what you have professed that you are going to do. And to me, I think that that is where the Pharisees and the scribes went wrong, that they failed to do what they were trying to do. Now, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the scribes were some of the most educated Jews. They were the ones whose entire existence and identity was wrapped around not just reading the scriptures, but knowing them and teaching them to others and helping people to fulfill those same scriptures. In fact, the Pharisees were those that were in the synagogues. The Sadducees, or the temple priesthood, were the ones that were in charge of the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees were the teachers in the synagogues that were houses of God's people outside of Jerusalem in the temple. And so they had their sphere of influence, and the Sadducees and the temple priesthood had theirs within the holy city of Jerusalem. But most people didn't live in Jerusalem. Most people lived outside of Jerusalem, and so if they had a large enough town, they had a synagogue. And there in the synagogue were Pharisees who helped to teach them. These are the ancestors, the precursors to modern-day Jewish rabbis who still today have synagogues where they read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the holiest parts of their scriptures, and they help people to understand them. This is starting to sound very similar to what I'm doing right now. And so we want to, to leave space for the fact that not every Pharisee was an evil person, but they as a whole had adopted some toxic practices. And the scribes were literally that. They were the people that were transcribing the scrolls. If you are rolling out a Torah scroll every day to read from Exodus when you guys gather for worship, then eventually you're going to wear that out. And I'm sure some of you have those Bibles that you've like broken the back and it's a mess and then you don't know what to do with it because it's the Holy Bible, but it's also a mess. What do I do with this? And so what you usually do is you put it on a shelf and then you buy a new Bible, right? That's what we do. We're like, we're just going to put this one over here because I don't know what to do with it and I'll get a new Bible. And then hopefully you'll wear that one out. And then before long, you have a whole collection of used Bibles. So what they did was their job was to transcribe the scrolls so that people would have those scrolls when they went to hear God's word in the synagogues. And I mean, if you are studying the scriptures and you're literate, and so your job is literally to take this version of the Isaiah scroll and put it over here onto this parchment, then you should be intimately acquainted with the Bible. There's probably no better way to learn the Bible than to actually rewrite the Bible word for word. If you want to do that, let me know. I would be fascinated to watch you do that. Um, but this is what they did. Now, granted, their, their, their scriptures are a lot smaller than ours. But this is what they were doing. And so, again, you had two groups of people who, by virtue of who they are and what they do, should know what the scriptures say. So when they say something, they have a real air of authority. People listen to them. You know, it's one of those things that we experience in life where you, you want to hear something, then you ask, you know, the, the expert. And so people were asking the Pharisees and the scribes questions, and they were responding. And they seemed to be very unified in how they were responding. 
And so the first thing they do is that they notice that Jesus, who's traveling around with his disciples, is allowing them to eat without washing their hands. And here's where we start to get a little iffy, right? So how many of you were reading that like, why is any of that bad? Why wouldn't you? We're just coming out of a pandemic. Wash your hands, right? Why wouldn't you wash your hands? Why wouldn't you wash your food before you ate it? Why wouldn't you wash your cups and your pots and your vessels? Why wouldn't you? Those are good things, right? This is like basic sanitation that we think of now. But the difference is that Jesus and his disciples were homeless. They had just traveled from somewhere else to be where they are. And they are tired and they are hungry. And it's not like you could go, oh, well, you know, we'll just go to the local sheets and get a meal. That's not how that worked. Somebody had to see you and choose to respond to your presence by offering you hospitality, by letting you come to their home and feeding you at their table their food. So it was actually kind of asking a lot. And so when they got a hold of some food, they were so ravenously hungry that they ate it immediately. So the modern example of this would be, what if we encountered a homeless person like them and they had been wandering around and suddenly they're here in Crozet and they're starving, they're really hungry and we're like, I can't feed you because you have not washed your hands. I'm sorry, I, come back to me once you've used some dial. How uncompassionate is that? Right, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't wanna do that to them. If you are starving and you are hungry, then we are gonna give you something to eat. Did you brush your teeth before you ate? No. You are hungry and so we will feed you. But the Pharisees are so dialed into the rules that they have lost the spirit, which is the charge that Jesus will give to them over and over again in all four gospel accounts. You are so focused on these principles and these rules and these ethics that you have lost the point. And the point is what's outlined in the definition from moral psychology. And that is that you have failed. You have failed to do the right thing. You have failed to live up to the standard that you have set just for yourself. And here's the truth. We all fail. All of us. The Bible says this. In the letter to Romans, the Apostle Paul says, all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Those of us that are wearing robes and stoles, not to throw the choir under the bus with me, but all of us do. Those that are in the pews, those that are not in the pews, those with papal authority, those with any other kind of church authority. We are not perfect people. We are a people who fail because we're mortal and we sin and we're flawed. And so we recognize that we are not going to be perfect. So why do we expect everybody else to be perfect? It's one thing when you expect yourself to be perfect and then you agonize over the fact that you're not perfect. But it's another to think that somebody else should be perfect and then wonder why they are not perfect. But we are a people who by fundamental existence recognize that we are not perfect. No cross would hang anywhere if we were a perfect people. We have crosses because we recognize that we are going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. And the hard part is when you were trying to do the right thing and you still sin. How devastating is that? And the example I use repeatedly of this is the time that my son and I were going to the grocery store and there was a gentleman coming out. And so I wanted to open the door and hold the door for him because he's coming out with groceries. And I opened the door right into my son's face. And he was like, why are you hitting me with a door? Yes, I set out this morning, got you dressed, made sure that you were clean, and I brought you to the store just so I could hit you with a door. 
I was like, I was trying to hold the door for him. And he's like, well, but you hit me. Exactly. I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to do something nice. I wanted to bless that guy, and now my kid has a fat lip. That is not what the intention was. But then I had to like hold the door for this guy and simultaneously make sure my child wasn't bleeding on the floor and apologize to my child because I wanted to do the right thing. But I didn't. I made a mistake. And somebody got hurt. And that's what Jesus is trying to say is that at the end of the day, it's not that you're not going to fail. We're all going to fail. I mean, if you read the gospel account of Mark, the disciples fail all the time. They fail. Why couldn't we heal that guy? Why, why don't we understand what you're talking about? What do, you, what do you mean you want to feed these people? You nuts? Look how many people are here. They're like, this is crazy. I don't think you can do that. Wake up, Jesus. We're all going to die. Why are you napping? I mean, they just fail constantly. And Jesus isn't like, okay, you know what? You've had three failures, and I'm getting a new crew. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus is like, okay, let's keep trying. Let's keep trying. Come on. Now here, I'll walk on some water, calm the storm. But he's trying to get them to recognize that it's not if you fail. We are going to fail. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. But when we fail, how do we respond? Which is different than reacting. Reacting is that visceral thing that happens, right? You know, when something's going on and you say something before you can stop yourself. I commit that one daily. That's a hard one. What are you thinking? Instead, it's how do you respond? You know, <laughs> let's talk about what's going on right now because this doesn't feel really good. Let's talk about this. What is going on? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to say because I'm, I'm not feeling good about what's happening here? Or, more often than not, it's, you know, as I'm talking, I'm realizing that this is probably not going well and uh, can we stop for a second and recognize that I might be hurting your feelings or upsetting you and I would like to reset. I talked about at children's time, those threads, those invisible threads of relationship that connect us, when you start to hear them like ripping at the seams, that's when you start to go, oh, you know what? Let, let's, let's stop for a second and focus on that relationship. Let's come back to that. And that's what Jesus wanted to focus on. You are here complaining about homeless men who are eating probably for the first time in half a day at least. You're complaining about Hungry people eating instead of making sure that they can eat. Instead of making sure that your response to them is compassion and care and kindness. And so Jesus says this, which is something that we quote all the time in the gospel account of Matthew. Matthew 25, where Jesus says in his parable about how we will determine who is getting to come into the kingdom of heaven that is to come and who is not. And Jesus says, those of you that are going to come in, like, well, the choir's all in, you notice that? The choir's all in. Those of you that are going to come in and join the choir, what did you do? You fed those that were hungry. You gave the thirsty something to drink. You clothed the naked. You welcomed the stranger. You visited the sick and the imprisoned. And Jesus says, and I know that you did this for you. did it to me. And the people that, are, that have done this are like, what are you? we never saw you that we did this to you. And Jesus says, yes. When you did it for anyone, you did it for me. You did it to me. <clears throat> so that what we believe and what we claim in our hearts and in our spirits has to be enlivened in how we live. You can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and then deny the suffering, hungry person food because they haven't washed their hands. Those are incompatible standards. Now, you might 
help them wash their hands. You might help them feel clean and comfortable. Repeatedly in the scripture, something we don't point out is that when Jesus and his menagerie descended upon someone's house, that they allowed them to stay there and allowed them to get, have water to clean up, to clean up their hands and their feet and their faces. We, we kind of skid over that a little bit. But it's true that hospitality, which is welcoming the stranger, is allowing people to feel the dignity with which they were created. Every one of us was created in the image of God Almighty. Every single human being is a person, a child of God, endowed with dignity. And our job is to protect and honor that dignity in the other. That's part of what it is to just be a human being. But we don't default to that. And so Christianity, our expression of our relationship with God Almighty, facilitated through the incarnation in Jesus Christ, allows us to have a framework, a point of reference, some guidance, and some people to help us do this together. But if we don't pay attention to what we're saying and how we're saying it and what we're doing over time, sometimes it feels so comfortable and easy for us that we don't realize that someone new who dares to enter in is suddenly ousted because they don't look, act, and do the things that we want them to do. How dare you come into church and not immediately know how we do everything? How dare you enter into a new group and not know everybody's name? How dare you come into the church and sit in my pew? You know, you don't have that problem if you're in the choir. I'm just pitching the choir today. Yeah, we got a reserved seat up here if you want to be in the choir. <coughs> Nobody will ever sit in your chair. <coughs> However, right, this isn't the church of Sarah Wastella. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And his name's on every pew. <coughs> so when someone comes in and they are tired or they are ready, who are we to go, you know, how dare you not know how it is here? and sit in my seat, right? Instead, it's like, welcome, welcome. You know, I usually sit here, I'm glad to have you join me. Thank you for joining me today. But when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, he points out this thing about honoring their mother and their father. He says, let me show you what the problem is. The problem here is that God has set a standard for you in the scriptures. And he's quoting for them, one of the 10 commandments as we refer to it, He's quoting for them that you should honor your father and your mother. And he says, and you don't do this because there was a practice that had arisen that was actually a huge controversy in Jesus' day. Yes, they had controversies in Jesus' day. And in his day, the controversy was that a number of people had developed a practice where if they owned a plot of land, they would vow that any produce or any, uh, anything that was produced of worth, whether it was trees or produce or a vineyard, whatever came from that, they would donate to the temple. And of course, the temple was in favor of this because they got stuff. And so all of a sudden, it became grounded in tradition that, yes, this was a great thing to do. The pious among us will make sure that they donate half a field so that everything will come down to the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus says, that's great if you can do that. Fine. Perfect. However, you have a commandment, and that commandment is not, you know, whenever your parents talk to you, yes, you're totally right, and I'm not. That is not what the commandment meant. The commandment was about honoring the relationship, the thread between you. 
and making sure that when your time came to care for the one who had cared for you, that you would step into that role and you have to step into that role. You have to choose to make that tr transition. And for those of you that have ever had a parent make that shift where suddenly you had to step into that role, you know that's a whole other world. It's very different. And now suddenly you are responsible for making sacrificial decisions that your parent used to make for you. And it, it's a mind-blowing situation to be in. And in Jesus' day, honoring your mother and your father also meant that you were going to make an economic commitment to your parents, that you were going to care for them when they could no longer work and care for themselves. Because they didn't have some of the things that we have as modern people in this nation. They didn't have social security. They didn't have a social net to help catch people because not everybody in our society has children or not everybody in our society has children that will live long enough so that they can do this. But in Jesus' day, honoring your father and your mother was a way that God was ensuring that as we aged, we would not be forgotten or forsaken. And they had become so obsessed with this tradition of outward piety that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who were encouraging it had all allowed people to stop doing the covenant, which is to honor your mother and your father, and instead to make a financial commitment to the temple system. It would be like saying to me, you know what? I'm going to give a big chunk of what I have to you, but I'm going to let my mom go homeless. What kind of church would want to be founded and funded with that kind of money? That's not what we want. We want to take care of one another. The church is here to take care of each other. We are here to ensure that when someone's hungry, they have something to eat. When they have nowhere to go, that they have hospitality. And so we cannot be those that are continuing the ways of the Pharisees and the scribes. Instead, we have to recognize the relationship that is there. That even if we don't know that person, God does. God knows them and loves them and treasures them. And therefore is inviting us to honor that same relationship and to step into our own with them. It's a different way of looking at the world. And Jesus points out to them, you know, you're so obsessed. Here, let me, let me make this easy for you because you're really into the rules. And in their day, they had 613 rules. They're still all there. We just don't follow all of them, right? Because anybody here who's ever had a bacon cheeseburger or pork or crab, I mean, because we are in Virginia, if you've ever had that, you've broken the commandments. But here's the thing. The commandments were not a list of rules to follow. If you go back and read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what you find is when you mess up in this way, here's how to fix it. The commandments themselves recognize that we are going to fail. It's not, here's 613 things that you will always do because you're perfect. Here's 613 ways you can mess up. And here's how to fix the relationship here and the relationship here that you've messed up. Here's how to get back, to get reconciled, to be rejuvenated, to allow the sins and the mistakes of the past not to dictate the brokenness and the fractured future. It's to be set free. We worship here in this space under an empty cross. Because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. That would have been an epic failure. Instead, 
Not only did he come off the cross, but he rose again. And now that cross is empty for you to place all of your sins and your failures, all of your guilt, all of those things that weigh upon you, those things that you can try to put on an outward veneer that aren't there, but those things that really start to taint how you feel about yourself and others, the way that you talk to yourself, the way you talk to others, and that really start to change what would, it, would naturally be a flowness of kindness and compassion into hatred and violence. Those things can be left there. And Jesus says this, if you have a fractured relationship with your brother, don't come here and place an offering that is dictated in the commandments here and think that you're okay. Leave your offering and go fix your relationship with your brother. Then come back. And if you do that, this is not a burnt offering anymore because you're a sinner. This is an offering of thanksgiving and gratitude because your relationship has been restored. Jesus didn't want our worship to be, we're horrible people. Jesus wanted our worship to be, you know what? We do fail because we're not perfect. But because of you, Lord, we can try again. We are not the culmination of our sin and our failures. Because of you, we can come here and we can sing about the joy of being one of yours. We can sing about the glory of knowing the God that created us and loves us and redeemed us. And then, because of that same love, we are able to offer that to others. But if you spend all of your time trying to uphold some kind of standard that is not real, that is not attainable, because all will fall short of the glory of God. All of us. But God said, I'm not going to let you be a failure. I'm going to give you everything that you need and more so that you can try again. I'm going to give you all the grace and the love that you could ever need. I'm going to give you so much of them, so much grace and love that you are not going to have any choice but to see if there's somebody else you can share it with. You know, we have someone in our church who grows a lot of produce. And I love the fact that this person, out of their abundance, chooses to bless other people. That's what grace and love is, choosing to bless other people. And that's what we're going to try to do. That's the point. So if you wonder to yourself, you know, I can't be perfect. Don't expect someone else to be. Expect someone else to not be perfect and then love them exactly where they are. Because one day, your day is going to come when you're not going to be perfect. And you want people to love you and forgive you and let you try again, right? So let's model that for one another. And let's model that for the world. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.